Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand and live streaming available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott and on today's program we're excited to be broadcasting this year's Voiceless Law Lecture. Voiceless is an animal protection institute that holds an annual animal law lecture series, inviting international leaders in animal law to share their expertise with Australian audiences by holding public lectures across the country. You can find all the presentations, all the past presentations, on Voiceless's YouTube channel. However, if you do keep listening, you can hear this year's presentation hot off the press, This year, Voiceless invited David Robinson-Simon, the author of Metonomics, and he discussed the true cost of factory farming. But just before we go there, just before I press play on the recording, the Freedom of Species team would like to thank everyone for donating during this year's Radiothon. Freedom of Species still does need to collect a few more pennies for um, the radio station coffers if we are going to reach our target. Um, so if it, it's not too late, you can support uh, the station that does support us. And also remember, if you did donate, uh, to honour your pledge. Uh, I will play a prompt on how you go about that and then we'll go straight to Voiceless's legal counsel, Sarah Margot, who introduced David Robinson-Simon when Sydney Uni hosted the Voiceless Law Lecture earlier this year. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 9419 8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Good evening, everyone. Voiceless has been running this lecture series for 10 years now with the intention of creating a public forum for learning about developments in animal protection and law and it wouldn't be possible without the support of our Voiceless community, some of whom are here tonight. I'd like to mention in particular Brian Sherman AM, Dr Jean Sherman and of course Professor Charlie Teo. Thank you as well to the University of Sydney for hosting us this evening and of course thank you to everyone who is here tonight for coming along. So as Charlie said, my name is Sarah Margot and I'm the legal counsel at Voiceless. And for those who are unfamiliar with us, Voiceless is a not-for-profit think tank. We were established in 2004 by father and daughter team Brian and Ondine Sherman. And our goal is to raise awareness and alleviate the suffering of animals in factory farms and the commercial kangaroo industry. And it's in these two areas where we see the greatest number of animals suffering. 600 million farmed animals are killed in Australia each year and 90 million kangaroos and wallabies have been killed for commercial purposes over the last 20 to 30 years, which has led to the commercial kangaroo industry being described as the largest slaughter of land-based wildlife on the planet. This disturbing reality aside, our industrial slaughter of farmed animals in Australia is dwarfed when put in comparison to the scale of animal agriculture in the United States. I put to you, however that this difference in scale should not alleviate any of our concerns, as Australia already ranks amongst the highest in the world for per capita meat consumption. This has grave impacts on the environment, human health, and of course, the millions of animals who can be legally mutilated and confined in unnatural environments for the duration of their lives. 
Yet, we still continue to consume meat at an exorbitant rate. And to put this into perspective, over the space of 50 years, the average Australian has gone from consuming 7 kilograms of chicken meat a year to 42 kilograms today. I'll preface Dave's talk now with a brief introduction to the Australian context. And it's important to understand that many years of research went into developing his book, and that research is yet to be undertaken in Australia. But while we may not have exact comparable statistics, a lot of the lessons are transferable. So in this way, we should widen our focus to consider the larger themes of metanomics and treat the situation in the US as a cautionary tale. That said, there is one key element of metanomics which is already well documented in Australia, and that's industry undue industry influence over our policy and lawmaking. There's been a proliferation of research on this topic and campaigns to address the problem of industry dominance in our animal welfare governance, and I'm sure that many of you here today are well-versed in this issue. And the fact is that animal advocates, lawyers, and some political groups have been calling for a variation of an independent office for animal welfare for years, and remarkably, we've just seen a really positive development. The Productivity Commission is an independent advisory body to the Australian government, and recently it undertook an inquiry into the regulation of agriculture in Australia. In its final report, it made a surprisingly progressive recommendation by recommending the establishment of an Australian Commission for Animal Welfare. This would operate as an independent statutory agency to manage the development of farm animal regulation. And where it gets really interesting is when you consider the reasons of why such an independent body is necessary. The Productivity Commission found that our animal welfare framework is failing as a result of conflicts of interest, undue industry influence and standard-setting processes, and a failure to properly consider community expectations about what animal welfare means. This echoes what the animal protection movement has advocated for a very long time, and not surprisingly, industry and government have not responded enthusiastically to this recommendation. So to set the scene, I'll briefly talk to some of those points raised by the Productivity Commission, and firstly starting off with the conflict of interest. So for starters, Australia presently lacks any valid form of federal governance or leadership in the animal protection space. Since 2013, when Tony Abbott and the Coalition came to power, the Commonwealth has ceased funding for the Australian Animal Welfare Strategy, disbanded its advisory committee, disbanded the Animal Welfare Subdivision within the Department of Agriculture, and ceased uh, and discontinued an animal welfare program for live export. In effect, the Coalition government has terminated every animal welfare initiative at a federal level. Instead, responsibility for animal protection is delegated to the Department of Agriculture. Now, this department is responsible for maximising the, product, the productivity and profit of agricultural industries. So a real or perceived conflict of interest arises when you consider that it is also responsible for animal welfare. And we know that animal welfare and productivity don't go hand in hand. A hen who has spent her entire life in a battery cage will continue to produce eggs. And the legality of sow stalls for mother pigs, battery cages for laying hens, and the fact that the live export industry continues today despite repeat investigations showing atrocious cruelty are all good examples of policy decisions where profitability has outweighed even the most basic animal welfare considerations. And this conflict is compounded by the fact that industry has disproportionate influence over our animal welfare standard-setting process. And this is particularly evident when we look at the science that is used to inform these animal welfare, these animal welfare standards. So substantial funds are allocated to animal welfare science and research, and they're given to groups called Statutory Research and Development Corporations, or RDCs. The major RDCs, or in other words, those who are responsible for providing us with our animal welfare science include Meat and Livestock Australia, Dairy Australia, Australian Egg Corporation Limited, Australian Pork Limited, and so on. 
And you can see how this might undermine the credibility of the research. This research is then used to form the basis of our animal welfare standards, which means that our current framework for farmed animals is prepared by industry for industry with the use of industry-commissioned or funded science. One example of this, which is quite topical at the moment, is the review of the current poultry code, which dictates how chickens, ducks, turkeys and other birds can legally be treated in farms ranging from free-range to intensive. And you may have heard about this in the news. So last year, the poultry code finally came under review for the first time in 15 years. And when we look at the key players involved in the review, we can see that there's disproportionate industry influence. The review is managed by Animal Health Australia, which is an industry government partnership, and it's assisted by various drafting and advisory bodies. Of the main advisory body, there are 35 stakeholders, three of which represent animal protection institutes, and most of the remaining 32 represent government and industry interests. With these groups setting priorities and determining which standards will be put forward to eventually become law, there's cause for concern that the new poultry code will not significantly improve the lives of hens in Australia, and it probably won't address key issues like the continued use of battery cages, maceration of male chicks, or de-beaking. One way to ensure that animal welfare isn't sidelined would be for this kind of process and review to be managed by an independent body, something like that recommended by the Productivity Commission. We have a lot of information on these kinds of independent bodies on our website. If you're interested, you can continue to read more. And if you're interested in learning more about these issues, in particular those welfare issues which affect hens, I encourage you to keep an eye out for our upcoming report, which is on the egg industry and will be released shortly. There's a briefing available already, which you may have picked up on your way in. And I'll also note that the Poultry Code is still under review and will be open for public consultation And watch this space to see how you can have your say. And it's very important that all concerned about hen welfare do so. So I hope that set a brief Australian context for some of the ideas we're about to explore with our guest speaker. David Robinson-Simon is a lawyer and advocate for sustainable consumption. His book, Meatonomics, looks at the ways meat and dairy producers manipulate consumers to consume significantly more animal foods than they would otherwise. David received his undergraduate degree from the University of California at Berkeley and his law degree from the University of Southern California. In addition to his day job as general counsel for a healthcare company, David is on the advisory council of the Animal Legal Defense Fund, is a director of the Animal Protection and Rescue League, and maintains an active caseload against animal abusers around the US, including lawsuits challenging foie gras producers in New York, ritual animal killers in Southern California, and the U.S. Coast Guard's shooting of cormorants in the Pacific Northwest. He's also brought more than 20 lawsuits successfully challenging restrictive rules for free speech imposed on animal activists at dozens of venues in California. We are honoured to have him here, so please join me in welcoming David Robinson-Simon. Thank you to all of you for being here and for your interest in this subject and particular thanks to uh, everyone at the Voiceless Organization for making it possible for me to be here. One of the great things about being in Australia for me is that I'm at least 15,000 kilometers away from Donald Trump. (laughs) Although one can never escape the tweets. Let me explain briefly how I came to be interested in this subject. A few years ago, I read a law review article that said that because of a number of legislative changes, farmed animals in the United States have no legal protection whatsoever. Zero. I had seen images of abusive conditions in factory farms, but I was not aware of the extent to which producers had sought to make those conditions not only normal, but completely legal. That led me to explore in some greater depth some of the other ways that animal food producers have recently sought to change the playing field for animals and producers. What I found is that in the last three decades, animal food producers in the United States, and as we'll see to a great extent in Australia as well, 
have sought to reach the hearts and minds of consumers in ways that are often unfair or misleading in order to get people to buy more animal foods. Now, it's not surprising that they do this. There's big money involved. What is surprising is how they do this. And I think you'll agree that some of these techniques push it a bit too far. So this triple, this multifaceted campaign involves three elements. First of all, producers have introduced legislation across the United States and all 50 states that not only seeks to decriminalize the abuse of factory-raised animals, but to make it difficult or impossible for consumers to investigate, criticize, or sue producers. Secondly, producers have pursued an aggressive messaging strategy that is often backed by the full strength of the US federal government, and as we'll see here, by the full strength of the Australian federal government that is intended to relentlessly bombard consumers with the message that they should eat more meat and dairy. And the third element of this campaign is that producers have sought to manipulate prices in order to keep them artificially low with the result that consumers are, are cued to buy much more animal foods than they would otherwise. This triple whammy of messaging, legislation, and price control has a remarkable feature, and that is that it allows producers to deprive consumers of the ability to make informed and independent decisions about what and how much to eat. Instead, as we'll see, these decisions are often made by the producers themselves. Economists might call this a supply-side market or a producer-driven market. But I suggest that beyond that, it's creepy, it's dysfunctional, and it's dangerous for millions of people and billions of animals. So what I'd like to cover in the next 45 minutes or so is this three-headed campaign, messaging, legislation, and price control, and the consequences that it has for consumers and animals, both in the United States and in Australia. And I think that much of what you'll hear will be new and potentially surprising and potentially disturbing, uh, for which I apologize in advance. And yet, uh, nevertheless, let's get started. In 1932, Aldous Huxley published his novel, Brave New World. And Huxley envisioned in this novel a future in which the government exists for one purpose, and that is to support industry by getting consumers to buy more goods, often goods that they don't really want or need. So because, for example, it's better for industry if you buy a new shirt rather than sew up or stitch up an old shirt, one of the ways that the government in this novel achieves its objective is by bombarding consumers with messages that say things like, ending is better than mending, or the more stitches, the less riches. It's a bit creepy and a bit big brotherish. But I submit that we are living in a version of this Huxleyan future today, because both in the US and in Australia, our federal governments are engaged in a campaign to support industry and bombard us with messages that are intended to get us to consume more meat, eggs, and dairy. In the US, we have something called a checkoff program, just like check a box. So these programs started out as voluntary measures, and now they're completely mandatory. It's a tax imposed on producers. The funds are collected and spent promoting animal foods, and to some extent, research on animal foods. These programs are very effective, and they lead with, with very catchy, quippy slogans like, beef, it's what's for dinner, milk does a body good, the incredible edible egg, pork, the other white meat, uh, milk life, pork be inspired, and there, people are bombarded with these. 
day and night in all media, internet, television, radio, TV, magazine ads, bus ads, 50,000 schools have posters in them with celebrities with milk mustaches. Industry is fond of saying that checkoff programs are a purely private endeavor because, in their view, it is industry groups who collect the funds and spend them. And for that reason, it's no different than if McDonald's spends money buying TV ads telling us to buy Big Macs. <coughs> However, that's completely false. 12 years ago, the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in our country, in a case called Johans versus Livestock Marketing, was faced with the question, when a checkoff program speaks, whose message is it speaking? Is it speaking the message of industry or is it speaking the message of government? And what the court found is that because the United States Department of Agriculture, a federal agency, is integrally involved in how checkoff programs are run, it, it's involved in collecting funds and how the funds are dispersed, it's in, involved in personnel decisions and recruiting, message, uh, overseeing the creation and the editing and in some cases the rejection of certain messages, because of that heavy involvement from a federal agency, the court found that when a checkoff program speaks, it speaks what is known as government speech. This is a form of speech that, that transcends and trumps all other forms, no pun intended, and the government can force industry participants to, to utter government speech. That's why it's so significant. So we can say, without controversy or doubt whatsoever, that when a checkoff program speaks in the United States, when it says, eat more beef, eat more pork, drink more milk, that is the federal government of our, of our country telling consumers to eat more animal foods. If that sounds outrageous, I'm sorry to say, um, we got the same thing in Australia. But these programs are remarkably effective. So in the U.S., in a recent year, last year that data was available, these funds collected $557 million, and after spending that on marketing, they successfully yielded $4.6 billion in extra sales. That's about an eight-to-one return on investment. So quite effective. And as I say, you have something almost identical in Australia. They're called levies. The Australian federal government, acting through the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources, collects levies on over 100 commodities, the majority of which are animal foods. And as you can see from this slide, includes things... Uh, the majority of which are animal products, which include things like animal fibers, dairy and honey, fisheries, live animal exports, etc. So these levy programs are responsible for messages that I'm sure most of you have heard, and they include things like, you're better on beef, get some pork on your fork, we love our lamb. That's the federal government teaming with industry to message Australians to buy more meat eggs, dairy, and other animal foods. And you can drill down into one of these categories, as I have here. This is the website of the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources. And you can see some of the types of animals who are covered by this levy. Cattle, buffalo, deer, goats, pigs, horses, lamb, sheep, etc. Now, as is the case in the US, in Australia, these programs are quite effective. The beef Levy, for example, likes to show on its website exactly how effective it is. As you can see at the top here, uh, the levy, uh, this is the You're Better on Beef campaign. For every $1 spent, it yielded a $2.91 um, increase in sales. That translated to a 6.3% uh, sale, sales increase year over year. But what I love the most about this flyer is this language at the bottom. It says, the campaign was successful in leading to a 13% decrease in mums, stating they are limiting their consumption of beef due to health concerns. Remember, this is your federal government. Now, why would somebody be concerned about, uh, about beef from a health perspective? Well, there are many reasons, but let's just look at a couple here. The World Health Organization lists processed meat as a class one carcinogen. 
That's in the same category as asbestos, benzene, PCBs. A class one carcinogen is, a, is an item which is known to cause cancer in humans when humans are exposed to it. The World Health Organization classifies red meat as a class 2A carcinogen. A class 2A carcinogen is, is an item which is likely to cause cancer in humans. So we can see that processed meat is a known carcinogen. Red meat is a likely carcinogen. And here is another interesting fact. The US and Australia have some of the highest rates of per capita meat consumption in the world. Depending on which ranking you look at and which year, you might see Australia in number one, US in number one. The lowest that I've seen Australia in the last 20 years is number seven. So we're consuming something around 120 kilos of meat per year. Now, these very high levels of meat consumption, not coincidentally, are associated with higher levels of disease. Australia ranks number three in the world in cancer incidence. And meat is a, either a known, red meat is either a known or a likely carcinogen, depending on how aggressively it's processed. So I guess one must ask the question, is it appropriate for the federal government to be pushing meat when it's certainly not telling people, expose yourself to asbestos or PCBs or benzene or coal fiber or other carcinogens? Let's look at the, and I'll have to leave that as a rhetorical question. I think the answer is obvious. <laughs> if you feel any sense of outrage, I suggest you speak to your uh, MP. Let's look at uh, the next of the, of the three elements I'd like to discuss, and that's legislation. In the US, it's impossible to discuss legislation that is friendly to business and unfriendly to consumers without talking about this organization, the American Legislative Exchange Council. John Oliver, whose show many of you may be familiar with, talks about this organization from time to time, enough so that he's giving it an honorary title, and he now calls it the associate producer of creating horrifying things for us to talk about. <laughs> and literally, everything that this organization does is horrifying. This organization campaigned against plain packaging for cigarettes in the US successfully. They also campaigned against it here unsuccessfully. This organization has passed voter identification laws in 34 US states that are found to unfairly target racial minorities. One of these was just struck down. This organization is behind laws limiting the ability of plaintiffs to recover against asbestos manufacturers and other manufacturers of dangerous goods. And as you may not be surprised to hear, it is responsible for uh, almost 200 laws that protect the animal agriculture industry. Now let's look at some of those. So this is just an overview. I'll, I'll go into some depth on these slides, but I just want to give you sort of the, the, the flavor for the terrain here. ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, provides state legislators with a template, like a Word document, with a model law that it suggests that those legislators introduce in their state legislature. And every single one of these is based on an ALEC template that ALEC has simply handed a legislator and that person introduced in his or her state and ultimately got passed. Likely with some amendment, but likely not with much. And you have some of the, even though you don't have ALEC here, you have some of these laws here as well. And we'll talk about these as well. Australia certainly is well behind the US with respect to this incredibly aggressive framework of legal protections that surrounds factory farmers. But I think it's catching up. I think that's something that you want to be aware of and have on your radar. So let's talk about ag-gag laws. Uh, you've all probably heard of these. In the US, where we have these in seven states, they started out with this, um, uh, this uh, kind of very broad, kind of blunt instrument, which was that any recording of images without consent is illegal. Now, a law with this feature was just struck down by a federal court in Idaho on the basis that it violates the American Constitution, which provides that free speech, as interpreted by the courts, includes the right to photograph or video 
items which you later intend to express. In other words, the free speech process includes both the creation of the message and the dissemination of the message. So I'm pretty confident that laws of this type will gradually be struck down. There are another couple that are being challenged right now, including one in Utah. The next stage that we saw as these were being introduced was laws that make it a crime to lie on a job application. These also have been held to violate our right of free speech because Guess what? We have a right to our speech. Our right of speech actually provides that we can lie on a job application. That's what a federal court has held. The, the rationale being that there's no material harm incurred by the employer. In other words, somebody got on got on board who wasn't supposed to be. To the extent there is material harm, it occurs later in the process, and that's when somebody films illegal abuse of animals. But that is not. That is not sufficient to, to prevent uh, so-called lying on a job application. So I think that this type uh, is eventually, I keep hitting the wrong button, eventually going to be subject to um, defeat in our courts as well. The, the most troubling type of agag law we have now, and this is the recent phenomenon, is laws that require that if you witness animal abuse, you have to report it immediately, typically within 24 or 48 hours, depending on the state and the statute. And although that might sound like a good idea, the problem is that in order to conduct a successful undercover investigation and gather enough evidence to convince a prosecutor to take a case and also ultimately to convince a judge or jury to convict somebody, you have to do that for months. You have to be able to show a pattern of repeated abuse. And simply having a video or photo of somebody smacking an animal once or twice is as annoying and disturbing as that is, it's not going to be enough to get a prosecutor to take that case. So these laws are not as clearly subject to constitutional challenge, and they do tend to prevent undercover investigations. In Australia, you've got a couple of these um, in the first category. Right here in New South Wales, uh, there, is a, there is an ag-gag law that prevents taking uh, recording of images without consent, and perhaps equally importantly, it prevents dissemination of those images. In South Australia, one of these laws has been introduced, has not yet been assented by the governor, so that's why if you saw in that chart I said you had 1.5, South Australia is sort of a 0.5. In the U.S., 13 states have so-called food disparagement laws. These are laws that provide, it, it's sort of like defamation. Now, defamation includes things like libel and slander. These laws are sort of like defamation on steroids because they, ex, they do two things. They, ex, they expand standing rights to go beyond simply plaintiffs to industry groups. So now an industry group that can show that its product, its commodity, beef, pork, whatever, has been damaged has standing, whereas absent this type of law, it would be much more difficult to show standing. And, and they lower the standard, particularly with respect to the press, for establishing disparagement. Oprah Winfrey had Howard Lyman, who is a retired or former cattle rancher, on her show about 25 years ago. Howard is now an advocate for veganism. And they were discussing mad cow disease and its effect on the Texas beef industry. And Oprah said, you've stopped me cold. I'll never eat another burger. The result was that in the ensuing weeks, the Texas beef industry suffered. Prices dropped. Demand dropped, not surprisingly. And so the Texas Cattlemen's Beef Association brought a lawsuit under the Texas uh, Food Disparagement Law. And because truth is a defense, as it is to any defamation case, Oprah and Howard ultimately won their case but it took them over a year and an estimated $1 million in legal fees. And Oprah later said she would never discuss that topic again publicly because of the threat of a lawsuit. So you can see that even though, you, even though one could prevail as a defendant in this kind of lawsuit, ultimately it would be expensive. And one might be inclined to curb what he or she says in order to avoid that lawsuit. So these laws have a tendency to chill speech, is the way I would summarize it. In 
26 out of 50 U.S. states. We have so-called cheeseburger laws based, again, on a model ALEC statute. Uh, This one's called the Common Sense Consumption Act. These laws prevent a plaintiff from recovering against a food manufacturer or distributor based on a theory that food caused the plaintiff to suffer from obesity or an obesity-related disease. The proponents of these laws make a couple of points. First of all, they point to the $400 billion that tobacco companies in the U.S. have paid to settle lawsuits in the last 20 years or so brought by state insurance companies, and they say, we don't want our industry going down that path. And second, perhaps more practically, they say, we need a filter to filter out unmeritorious lawsuits before they get to court. And this law establishes that kind of filter. That is to say, if somebody thinks he or she is obese because of what he or she has eaten, that's simply not a great lawsuit. People need to be responsible and take charge of their own lives. Well, opponents of these laws, of whom I am one, say that the common law system has developed great filters over the centuries that it's been around. And today, in the U.S., we have things like motions to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action. We have motions for summary judgment. You have similar things here. And there's no basis to establish a statutory cutoff well before we get to the point where we can even look at the merits of some of these cases. And I think that what we'll find is that, in fact, there will be cases with merit, just as there were in the tobacco industry. And in 26 states that have these laws, those, those litigants will not get their day in court. 39 U.S. states have animal and ecological terrorism laws based, not surprisingly, on a model ALEC statute called the Animal and Ecological Terrorism Act. These laws provide that with respect to what would otherwise be relatively innocuous crimes like petty theft, malicious mischief, vandalism, when the target is an animal enterprise, that is to say, any business that has anything to do with animals, a factory farm, a testing facility, a grocery store, a restaurant. In that case, the perpetrator is subject to enhanced criminal penalties. So, for example, in this case, this volunteer is doing an open rescue of a duck from a foie gras facility. This would normally be petty theft given the value of the duck, which is less than a statutory threshold. However, because the target is an animal enterprise. First, this gentleman would be subject to enhanced penalties. So he he would go likely from a slap on the wrist, maybe some community service and uh, probation, to possibly six months to a year in jail. He would also be branded a terrorist. And one of the ironic things about that is that in the United States, you can bomb an abortion clinic and take human lives Uh, but you will not be branded a terrorist. But if you rescue a a duck from a factory farm, you will. In all 50 states and in two Australian states, we have what are known as right-to-farm laws. These laws provide that a landowner who lives near a factory farm, who is subjected to some sort of damage from that factory farm, whether it's water pollution, air pollution, noise, some sort of hazardous or dangerous activity, whatever the the damage or injury, that plaintiff has no right to sue under a nuisance theory. Nuisance is a centuries-old common law tort that basically says a landowner has a right to quiet enjoyment of his or her land. These laws simply eliminate that for people who live near factory farms. One of the problems with eliminating that private right of action is that it means that to the extent factory farms are doing things that violate environmental laws, for example, like emitting effluents, polluting water, uh, allowing fumes to escape into the air, only the government can enforce those laws. There's no private right of action. It's been eliminated. And often the government in in our country, the federal and state environmental protection agencies, or EPAs, is too busy with other things. It's got limited resources. It can't pursue every one of these cases. So 
These are now, in many states, called right-to-harm laws because they're seen as encouraging factory farmers to pollute their environments with relative impunity. So this is perhaps the, um, the most important subject matter of my talk. It's the reason I wrote the book. In, in all 50 US states and in seven Australian states and territories, we have what are known very generically as customary farming exemptions. A customary farming exemption takes a state's anti-cruelty statute and it carves out an exemption which basically provides that with respect to farmed animals, they have no protection from cruelty. It works a little differently in the US as opposed to Australia. So let me give you an example of the, of the US mechanism and I'll give you an example of the Australian mechanism. In the US, in 1854, the Connecticut legislature adopted a statute that prohibited cruelty to quote any animal unquote, cannot get broader than that. That's a pretty effective anti-cruelty statute. In 1996, little more than 10 years after ALEC came into being, Connecticut amended its cruelty statute, and now that statute provides that it is legal to, quote, maliciously and intentionally maim, mutilate, torture, wound, or kill an animal, provided the act is done while following generally accepted agricultural practices, unquote. So what that means, and most of the statutes that we have in the US have that language, generally accepted agricultural practices. So what that means is if enough factory farmers decide to do something because it's expedient, by definition, that becomes legal, which I suggest is no different from allowing nursing home operators to decide what is legal in their treatment of elderly residents. It's the fox guarding the hen house, so to speak. In Australia, you reach the same result, but through a slightly different mechanism. Again, each state and territory has an anti-cruelty statute, but in seven out of eight of them, the regulators have adopted a set of regulations called codes of practice. So that, for example, in New South Wales, the cruelty statute says, quote, a person shall not commit an act of cruelty upon an animal, unquote. Again, that's pretty broad. But further down on the statute, it says that if you comply, and I'm paraphrasing because it's legalistic, if you comply with the code of practice that the New South Wales Department of Industry has adopted, you are deemed to comply with the cruelty statute. And of course, the codes of practice, which are adopted with respect to each area of farming, provide for these customary farming exemptions. What are we talking about here? It is legal in virtually uh, every state uh, and territory in the US and Canada to cut off almost any part of an animal's body without anesthesia, including beaks, tails, ears, testicles. It is legal, again, in almost every area to confine sows in sow stalls, or what we call gestation crates. Legal to confine egg-laying hens in battery cages in which they will spend their entire lives in an area about two-thirds the size of a paper, about like that. It is legal to de-beak chickens which means to cut off a third to half of their beak. Now, a chicken's beak has about as many nerve endings as our lips. So imagine that this would feel roughly like having your lips chopped off. In the egg-laying industry, it is legal to discard male chicks in any way that is expedient, including throwing them away, dumping them into garbage cans, leaving them to starve or freeze to death. They can be thrown into wood chippers or meat grinders, literally any way that is expedient. And it's important to recognize, we're not talking about the extreme cases or the worst factory farms. There's no no, better factory farms. This is it. This is universal. And even in so-called humane environments, this is a free-range hen facility. It's 100,000 hens in a dark, windowless shed. They've all been de-beaked. 
In many cases, they'll be subjected to forced molting, meaning they'll go without food or water for two weeks, up to two weeks, during which 15, up to 15% of them will die, and they'll be deprived of various other natural instincts, like dust bathing, which is one of the things that hens like to do. There are exceptions, but the overall rule in, in the United States, 98% of animal foods come from animals raised in this in these conditions. And on Australia, at least 95% of animal foods come from animals raised in these conditions. In the US, California, Massachusetts have adopted animal welfare regulations that require that animals be given room to exercise. Uh, in the Australian Capital Territory, similar regulations have been adopted. But that's, that's three out of 58 states and territories. So the vast majority in the general rule is that Animals raised for food in the U.S. or in Australia will spend their lives in, in relative misery, subjected to these customary farming exemptions. So let's move on to the third topic, and that's price control. Before I get there, I want to explain a simple concept, and that is if I take my garbage and take it to the front of my driveway and leave it there for the garbage service to pick up, and I pay them to do that. I have internalized my garbage collection costs. And most people would say that's appropriate. I created the garbage. I should pay to have it picked up. On the other hand, if I take my garbage to a park and dump it there and drive away, I have externalized my garbage collection costs. I've imposed those costs on society. I forced somebody else to pay my production costs, so to speak. I argue and I show the math on this, that animal food producers are literally dumping their garbage in our parks. They are externalizing the vast majority of their production costs and imposing those costs on society. In the United States, producers are externalizing at least $414 billion every year. To put this in perspective, this is about $540 billion Australian dollars. It's about a third of Australia's gross domestic product. These are the costs related solely to animal food production or consumption. And in, in the case of healthcare, for example, these are costs related to cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, mostly. Australia has got its own issues. Australian animal food producers are externalizing something like $14 billion in costs related to uh, animal food production. Again, you see that the biggest component is health. Um, if, should you get a chance to look at my book, you'll see the math for the US uh, figures. Unfortunately, uh, with limited time, it's beyond my ability to, to really drill down too deeply. If you take the American data, and take this figure here, retail sales. That's the annual sales of animal foods. You take that $251 billion and you add to it the $414 billion in externalized costs, you get about $665 billion in cost to consumers. And that yields this formula. that says that for every $1 of animal foods sold at retail, there's another $1.70 of externalized costs that is imposed on society. Which is to say, for example, Every time McDonald's sells a Big Mac for $5, there's another $8 of externalized costs imposed on top of that. So the social cost of a Big Mac is $13. Now, there's a very simple economic principle called the law of demand. The law of demand says when prices come down, demand goes up. And we've all found ourselves subject to this law at some point in our lives. If you've ever bought anything on sale, you've responded to the law of demand. Consumers are rational beings, and they respond to price cues. Now let's look at what that means for us. Well, in the US, and largely to the same extent in Australia, in the last 70 years, animal food prices on an inflation-adjusted basis have dropped dramatically across the board. Butter is down 44%, ham is down 48%, chicken is down 70%. And as you might expect, based on what the law of demand predicts, that leads to increased consumption. If you look at this chart, 
dealing with chicken consumption, you see that in the U.S., in 1935, chicken cost about $5 a pound. Today, it's about $1.50 a pound. In 1935, humans, uh, Americans consumed about 9 pounds per person per year of chicken, and today it's about 57 pounds per person. And that is exactly what the law of demand predicts. Prices come down, demand goes up. Now, humans, as I said, are rational consumers. We respond to price cues. If you don't eat meat, you don't really care what the price of chicken is. But if you're like the 330 million people in the US who do eat meat, and probably 20 million or more in Australia who do eat meat, you do respond to those price cues. So when producers lower prices or keep them artificially low, you respond by buying more. One of the commentators who has written on this phenomenon says, and this is animal science professor Marta Rivera, quote, consumer demand is not linked with the actual biological needs of humans, but with prices, unquote. In other words, people think they need to eat meat for for a variety of reasons, but what they're really doing when they're consuming it at these astronomical levels that we have in the U.S. and Australia is responding to these kind of price cues. She goes on to say, again, specifically about animal food production, quote, it is wrong to believe that production systems are driven by consumer demands. It is more plausible the other way around. Production systems are the ones that determine and create the market. In other words, it is producers who are determining how much animal foods consumers are buying. It's a heavily producer-driven market. Let me summarize to this point. We have seen that animal food producers externalize the vast majority of their costs and impose those costs on society. That allows them to artificially lower their prices. Those low prices cause people to buy much more meat, eggs, and dairy than they would otherwise. Today, the United States and Australia have some of the highest rates of per capita meat consumption in the world. We also have some of the highest rates of disease linked to meat consumption in the world. As I said, Australia has the third highest incidence of cancer. U.S. has the sixth highest. We are consuming meat, eggs, and dairy at levels that are much, much higher than make any sense. These levels are not sustainable. They're harming our health. They're damaging the environment. They're hurting the economy. Obviously, they're not good for animals. We've seen the way the animals are raised in this system. So the question is, at least the question for me that I pose is, how can we lower these levels of consumption to something that is at least sustainable? I'm not pitching everybody to go vegan. That would be nice. But short of that, how can we just return this market to an actual state of equilibrium? so that the market functions properly. Well, I've got a couple of ideas. One is an institutional one, and one is a personal one. So let me, talk, let me start with the institutional idea. In the early 1900s, the Cambridge economist Arthur Pigou theorized that if you tax a socially undesirable good, like tobacco, or like gasoline, or liquor, you achieve two benefits. First of all, you lower consumption, because as we saw, the law of demand says if you raise prices, consumption goes down. And secondly, you increase tax revenue. The government has more dollars or pounds or whatever that it can spend on social programs. And as we see in this example from the US, we started taxing tobacco aggressively in the early 80s. And at that point, a pack of tobacco was about $1.88. After imposing massive taxes, uh, we got up to about 4.64 on average. In some places, it's much higher. In New York City, it's like $15 a pack. But in the tobacco-producing states like Virginia, it's much lower. So this is the average. But at that same time, we see that consumption dropped by almost 50%. We could also look at another chart that shows that the incidence of lung cancer dropped by about a third during this time. So tobacco taxes have really worked. They've done exactly what they are predicted to do. They decrease consumption, they increase revenue. And by the way, revenue has gone to over $25 billion during this time. That's money that state and federal governments spend on social programs, such as informing people of the dangers of tobacco. So not surprisingly, I propose a meat tax. 
And I've used this headline. I don't know if you can see the date. This just came out April 21st. So this is less than two weeks old. And the reason I like this headline is it's indicative of a growing awareness and a what I think is almost a movement toward the idea of a meat tax around the world. The United Nations has proposed a meat tax. Denmark, Sweden, UK have all proposed meat taxes. And I think we're going to see a meat tax relatively soon for the social reasons that, that we saw with tobacco and with other undesirables. The tax that I propose is a 50% tax on all sales of food that contain any animal products. I would implement at the same time the elimination of subsidies to animal foods and the elimination of checkoff programs. And obviously, if this were done in Australia, I would eliminate levies as well. That combination of eliminating those, those programs and this 50% tax would result in about a 44% decrease in consumption of animal foods every year that this tax is implemented. That would have some amazing social benefits. We would be able to, for example, save 170,000 human lives every year this tax is in effect. We could save 26 billion animal lives every year this tax is in effect. And we could avoid eliminating $1.4 trillion in carbon equivalent uh, emissions that um, would have the same effect as removing from all roads and waterways, all motor vehicles and motor vessels in the United States. And I think that here in Australia, because of the similar levels of consumption and similar demographics, that a tax would have similar results, obviously proportionately smaller because you have a proportionately smaller population, but I would guess you'd probably save something like 15,000 human lives and something like 2 billion animal lives if you imposed a meat tax. The personal... Uh, uh, the personal solution um, is to consume less animal products, or potentially none. And as this slide shows, and I've included the sites to peer-reviewed clinical research, the typical person who eats meat has about 25% higher cholesterol than the typical vegan, has about 18% higher body mass index than a vegan, and has only 87% the life expectancy of a typical vegan. These are real real benefits to a plant-based diet, notwithstanding all the other stuff, the environmental benefits, the economic benefits, the benefits to animals, just on a personal level. Look at the health benefits you can get from a plant-based diet. And if you're not ready to do this, uh, uh, to go strict vegan or even vegetarian, you could do it one day a week, like a meatless Monday. And the research su suggests that that would lower your risk from all causes of of death by 11%. Lower your risk of death from all causes by 11%. You could also save five or more animals just doing a meatless Monday. So we have come full circle. We're back to Aldous Huxley, who died in 1963, the same year I was born. And while some people have speculated that I am his reincarnation, Cannot confirm or deny that. <laughs> Huxley, who again wrote Brave New World, said, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. During the 45 minutes that I've been speaking, something like 50,000 animals have been killed for food in Australia, and 5 million have been killed for food in the United States. And it's not so much just the fact that these animals were killed, but more importantly, the fact that almost invariably, in more than 95% of the cases, they led lives of misery subject to the customary farming exemptions that we saw a few slides ago. Huxley warned us that our governments would try to manipulate us to get us to buy things that we don't really want or need. And as we've seen, he was right. He was remarkably prescient. This is really happening today. But we can think for ourselves. We don't need to follow our government's advice and get some pork on our fork or accept that we're better on beef. Let's make these decisions for ourselves. And if you're not already doing so, 
I strongly encourage you to consider exercising the greatest power that you have as a consumer, and that is to boycott this cruel and dysfunctional industry. Thank you very much. That was David Robinson-Simon, the author of Metanomics, The True Cost of Factory Farming, speaking at this year's Voiceless Animal Law Lecture Series. That's all we've got time for today on Freedom of Species. Be sure to come back and tune in again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.